What's up, everyone? You're listening to Yap Snacks, a series of bite-sized content hosted by me, Hala Taha. Today's episode features best of content from Chris Voss, the world's top negotiation expert. This is part two of a two-part series. Chris is a former FBI hostage negotiator and CEO of the Black Swan Group, where he uses his extensive career in international crisis mitigation and high-stakes negotiation to teach people how to better negotiate and refine their communication styles. In this episode, we're going to dig into tactical empathy. Tactical empathy is the act of putting yourself in another person's shoes so they feel seen and understood. It piggybacks off of some of the topics from part one, such as emotional labeling and mirroring. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one yet, we put it out a few weeks ago and I advise that you go back now, listen to part one before moving on to part two of this series. Apart from tactical empathy, this episode will touch on reading body language, handling accusations and preparing for negative reactions in advance. To kick things off, let's hear from Chris about the power of diffusing negatives and get a better understanding of tactical empathy. So we're naturally in a negative mindset. Survival mode, you know, our default wiring, if you will, is on the negative side. It's what kept the caveman alive. You know, the optimistic caveman got eaten by the bear every time. The negative, pessimistic caveman was like, I'm getting out of here. So that's a wiring that we're born with. You, know, we, you wake up in the morning. You're in a naturally somewhat negative mode because it was necessary for survival. That's why it's really smart to have a gratitude exercise when you first get out of bed in the morning. It's like mental hygiene. The other, my counterpart, they're going to be negative. I know that because they're human. I'm going to throw some stuff out right off the bat to diffuse it, not to make them positive, but to diffuse a the negative. There's a real big difference. And then I'm going to sprinkle it in periodically. Like if I'm getting ready to ask you something, by definition, your caveman brain is going to say, ah, that's greedy. Uh, they're asking for too much. I, I know that. I know That's how you're wired as a human being. You can't help it. So the diffusing mechanism is I'm going to say, it's going to seem greedy. And that not only diffuses, but inoculates it. Somebody asked me what it costs to hire my company or to hire me as a consultant. I'm going to say more than you've ever spent in your life, more than you have. Because, first of all, my prices are high. And secondly, I don't want you to get caught off guard by the number. So that's because of your natural negative wiring. So I'm going to let that sink in. And then you're going to decide whether or not you want to hear the number. Getting to your second point, which is autonomy. I need to preserve your autonomy. I need you to choose whether or not you want to hear the number. I don't need to sell you on it. I will need you to choose it. That preserves your autonomy. Then when you're ready, I've diffused the negative. I preserve your autonomy. You're going to go, all right, how much is it? And then the other thing I know, that the number you imagine is going to be higher than the number that I throw out. So my number is actually going to seem like a relief. That's really smart. So let's dig deeper on tactical empathy because people get confused empathy with sympathy and even agreement. So talk to us about the difference between those three. 
Yeah, so let's let's talk about uh, the mercenary's definition of empathy or the hostage negotiators. It was why I originally started collaborating with Harvard way back when. Because as a hostage negotiator, if I use empathy, it can't be sympathy. I mean, how could I use sympathy with Al-Qaeda? How are they, they going to believe I'm sympathetic to their cause? They're not. Or, you know, a Marxist uh, guerrilla faction in Colombia, South America, someplace. They're not going to think I'm sympathetic. But how do I use empathy? Just demonstrating that, demonstrating that I understand where they're coming from. And one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, we had a terrorism trial. We had a bunch of Muslim witnesses testify voluntarily. How did I get them to testify voluntarily? I'd sit down with them and I'd say, you believe that there's been a succession of United States governments for the last 200 years that have been anti-Islamic. That's an empathy statement. There was no sympathy in there. There was a demonstration of understanding. There was no, no agreement. Again, to your point, I never said the U.S. government was anti-Islamic. I just said, you believe this, X, period. That's empathy. It's, it's, it's kind of that simple. So the FBI's run along wrong doing that. And then I read Bob Mnookin's book at Harvard, and he says exactly the same thing. Empathy is not agreement. Empathy is not even liking the other side. It's just stating what their opinion is. So, all right, cool. I can use that with anybody. So if I could just explain this to my listeners, make sure they fully understand it. You're using tactical empathy to basically dismantle the elephant in the room, diffuse the negativity, and make it so that everything's just out on the table and they feel, do they, it makes them feel more comfortable? Like, what does it actually do to them? Yeah, and I, and I love your phrase, dismantle the elephant in the room versus denying that it's there or pretending that you love the elephant. I love elephants. No, you don't like elephants. It's right there, though. So it makes people feel validated. To feel understood is sort of this almost magical transformation that happens in people. And, and here's why it seems magical. Uh, when we were first working on the book, Tal Raz, a co-author, said, I think when you demonstrate epiphany or e- empathy, it creates an epiphany in the other person, a realization. Like a, It's what people say, they say, that's right, when you demonstrated empathy. That's right, that's how I feel. So... You know, I'm into neuroscience these days. I looked up epiphany on the web and it said, when you experience an epiphany among the neurochemicals that are triggered internally are oxytocin and oxytocin is a bonding drug. So when someone feels understood by me, I know they bond with me. And if if I'm looking to make a deal and have a long-term relationship, I want you to bond with me because you're going to then, now you're going to collaborate. So that's, it's a really indirect route to save a lot of time. And I can imagine it makes them feel safe and, and feel like it's okay to tell you information, which in a negotiation, it's all about getting as much information as possible. Exactly. That's right. Look what you did. <laughs> yeah. And since you brought up that's right, we're going to have to break that down to our, for our <laughs> listeners. So tell us about these magical words, that's right, and why your right is actually not what you want to hear. And that's right is once you hear those words, you know that you're on the right track. Yeah, that's right. It's what people say when they feel 
completely understood or completely represented by the other side. And, you know, this, this, the empathy moment, the oxytocin moment is insane. As an example, it's why common ground is for grade C level negotiators. Tactical empathy, the that's right moments, that's for the A plus people. And I'll give you an example. Because regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, whether you're supportive of him or against him, you're either perplexed or proud of the fact that his followers follow him come what may. Like he said early on in his presidency, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and my supporters would still be behind me. Now, what happened that created this bond with them? Was it common ground? Well, when Trump first ran for president, you know, all the pundits said he'll never get elected because he's a New Yorker, he's a billionaire, he's a white male. But the New Yorker and billionaire stuff means he has no common ground with the Republican base and they will never embrace him. Well, clearly they embraced him despite sharing no common ground as people would normally define it. So what is it? When he stood up and started talking about the stuff that he believed in, at some point in time, people listening to him said, that's right. That's what I believe in. You know, Trump would be up there and say, you know, I, I, ha- I hate the media. And all the Republicans that hate the media would go like, that's right. The media is an evil thing. You know, he says lamestream media and vast majority of the Republican base believe that the media is, is biased. So he was saying things and people were saying, that's right, creating a bond to be envied. If you love Donald Trump, you want to you emulate what he did. If you hate Donald Trump, you're mad at what he did because it's such a huge bond. And me and my team, you know, we think, you know, if Donald Trump doesn't tell you what oxytocin will do for you in terms of building relationships, then you are not paying attention. And now a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. 
Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like Chris mentioned, great negotiators address underlying emotions by labeling them. Labeling negatives diffuses the negatives and labeling positives reinforces the positives. Labeling can help de-escalate situations because it acknowledges the other party's feelings rather than them continuing to act on those feelings. And remember, the golden rule with all of these negotiation tactics that we've been talking about is to understand that at the end of the day, you're dealing with a human who wants to be appreciated and understood. Now let's move on to recap tactical empathy. Remember, this is not sympathy. Sympathy is actually not productive, while empathy is. Empathy helps people feel heard. It encourages them to open up. When practicing tactical empathy, one thing to keep in mind is that you want to focus on the other person's perspective rather than relate it to your personal experiences. The reason is because that makes it all about you and the whole point is to make it about them. You don't want to take away attention from them because that could be seen as arrogant or dismissive. And the most crucial aspect of using tactical empathy is to make people feel heard or understood. And that can be as simple as just repeating what they've just said. So using that mirroring tactic that we talked about in part one. And you'll know you're right on track when you hear the words, that's right. Now let's put this into practice by listening to some examples of using tactical empathy in specific conversations. So let's say your opponent thinks you're an arrogant jerk based on your past hot-headed interactions. How do you diffuse that elephant in the room in a sympathetic way, which is the wrong way, and then in an empathetic way, which is the right way? A sympathetic way would probably be like, you know, I understand um, my dad was an arrogant, hot-headed jerk, and it was uh, it was really hard for me to deal with him, too. 
you know, that would be like trying to share the experience. I understand is what people often say when they're trying to be sympathetic, uh, but they want to give you an example of their own experience and how they dealt with it. The unspoken part of it is I'm saying like, look, I got over it, so it's time for you to get over it too, <laughs> which is you're trying to help people get over stuff. So, you know, you think on the suicide hotline way back when he said, if somebody's in quicksand, you don't help them by getting into the quicksand with them. And that's kind of what sympathy is. So team me up again and I'll give you the tactical empathy. Your opponent thinks you are an arrogant jerk based on past hot-headed interactions. You know, you probably feel like I'm an arrogant jerk. You probably feel like I don't listen to you, that I fly off the handle. You're probably scared to say anything to me at all because you never know when I'm going to blow up and it's painful for you. So then they feel like, oh, he he understands me. It just makes them, I guess, feel more calm that that's acknowledged. Yeah, it starts to diffuse it. It makes me look honest, genuine, unafraid of my shortcomings. You know, you're not going to solve a problem unless you're aware of the problem. If I, if I at least articulate it, at least I'm aware. You know, I'm not, I'm not giving you a sympathetic response, which is like kind of like, you know, everybody deals with hot-headed people. It's just part of life. Uh, that doesn't show any awareness that maybe my approach might be counterproductive. So if I say, look, you know, I probably seem like a hot-headed jerk. If I begin to demonstrate at least some awareness of it, you're, you have an encouragement. I'm, I am never going to fix a problem that I won't even admit is a problem. You know, first step, right? You know, the 12-step programs globally, whatever 12-step thing you're dealing with. The first step is recognition of the problem. At least recognition of the dynamic. Maybe I don't even want to say it's a problem. At least I recognize the dynamic. That's tremendously reassuring to the other side. And it doesn't imply that they're wrong in not reacting or they're off base or they're, you know, any, any of the negative things that simple recognition has a tendency to keep from ever getting on the table. Okay, one more. Let's say you're doing a group project and two colleagues don't get along with each other and they're, they're refusing to work together. How would you diffuse that with tactical empathy? So your, your answer might be like, look, you guys clearly see things differently. You guys are clearly rubbing each other the wrong way. What are we trying to accomplish here? So I, I threw, I, I did two things with that. You know, I, I threw out some understanding that wasn't pointing a finger at either person. I'm just calling out the dynamic, you know. I'm looking to dismantle the elephant in the room. So in a follow-on, what question, which is a calibrated question, your, your questions, if you ask them at all, probably ought to start with what or how because you're asking the question to create an effect and then to get people to think. And you also got to throw in correct tone of voice because I could say, what are we trying to accomplish here? which is accusatory. You know, my voice is saying like, why don't you two idiots see the damage you're creating? But instead I go, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish here? You know, it's curious. 
it's trying to get people without feeling accused to take a look at their original reason for being in the room, original reason for being part of the group, and give them the opportunity to decide whether or not they want to stick to that original reason, which is, again, that autonomy thing that you were talking about earlier, which people will die to preserve their autonomy. People will walk away, people will tank deals. There's all sorts of things that to other people that they do that it's clearly damaging to them short-term and long-term just to preserve their autonomy. And that's specifically to preserve the ability to say no, right? So why is that so powerful? Why do people like to have the choice to say no? What's the psychology behind that? Again, I believe it's an autonomy issue. You know, one of the books that inspired me early on when I first started realizing a hostage negotiation applied to business was a book called Start With No, written back in 2002 by a guy named Jim Camp. And he was a salesman. He had backgrounds in both the military and in sports coaching. But he's working in a sales as a salesman. And he called it the right to veto. And his approach on Start With No was in a sales process, he would say, look, I want you to know that you can say no to, the, no to me at any time, any moment in time. It's okay to say no, I will go away. I'm not trying to get you to say yes without you understanding that you could say no at any moment. He called it the right to veto. And just preserving that right, suddenly he made more sales. Suddenly he made more deals. He, mo- he made more agreements. He made more than anybody else did. And, he's, and that's where, you know, Jim said, people will die to preserve their autonomy. And I'm, I was a hostage negotiator. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. You know, we got people shooting themselves all the time just to avoid surrendering to the police. So this autonomy thing and a, and a right to say no, the feeling that it's okay to say no goes an awful long way in making people feel that you're not trying to bamboozle them. Yeah. So for me, one of the least intuitive things about everything that you teach is the fact that we're not trying to get people to say yes. We're trying to get people to say no because of this thing we just talked about, that people love to have the choice to say no, and it makes them feel in control, right? So so talk to us about how we can ask questions in a way where people would start with no and then agree with us and, and get to the yes, but they always start with saying no, and then get to the yes. So how do we ask questions like that? Yeah, well, most of them, it's simple, but it's hard because it's so against our wiring. Like, I never say, have you got a few minutes to talk? I say, it's now a bad time to talk. I never say, do you agree? I say, do you disagree? I never say, is this something that would work for you? I say, is this a ridiculous idea? Are you against I mean, the transformation from yes to no is actually really simple once it doesn't scare the hell out of you. But so many people the first time out are so afraid because you're taught that yes is success, which if you believe that, it makes no by definition failure. People are horrified of the word. Once Once you can cross that bridge, the rest of it is so easy. Why do you think people will tend to agree with you more and you'll get what you want when they actually say no first? Well, people are conditioned from the age of two that when they say no, it makes them feel safe and protected. 
And it's what an adult says to a child when a child does something wrong. No. So what does a child learn from that? Saying no is what adults do. Adults' jobs to say no. I, you know, I once, and even, okay, it was a, a guy who was a lieutenant on NYPD. He once told me uh, a lieutenant's job was to say no. And he didn't even care what the question was. He felt like he was doing his job when he said no. So it makes no sense, but people condition themselves over and over and over. Like Pavlov's dog from the famous psychological experiment. When I say no, I feel safe and in control. So get somebody to say no because what the real issue is, you need to know what comes after the word, either yes or no. If, you, people, if, you, if I get you to say yes, you're going to be reluctant to say anything else because you're going to feel like you're digging yourself into a hole. If I say, which is, do you agree? You might want to say yes, but here are the problems. If I say, do you disagree? You're going to be like, no. But I can't agree unless you fix these following problems. And now I've got a path forward. The really what I need to know is I need you thinking, laying out problems for me. And when you're feeling safe and secure, you can do that. Is there any other ways that we can practice this? Because I feel like this one gem is so powerful if people just learned how to use it. Well, you know, and and to get used to it and just change from, have you got a few minutes to talk to is now a bad time to talk, like in all your conversations. It's small stakes practice for high stakes results. So in a, in a little, bitty, little bitty conversations, we're trying to get yes on a regular basis, just practice, get no instead and, and gain a feel and watch to see over and over again the different kind of reaction you get. At its core, tactical empathy is reiterating things that you know to be true. You also want to make sure that people have the opportunity to preserve their autonomy by making it clear that they are in control of their role in the situation. Giving people the option to continue a conversation topic is one way to show that you're respectful of their boundaries. And also give people the right to say no Saying yes is far more limiting than saying no. So if you frame your questions for people to say no instead of yes, you're going to give them the opportunity to be more open and honest. Like I mentioned earlier, the golden rule in negotiation is to make people feel seen and understood. If I could coin a second golden rule in negotiation, I think it would be to always think of a way to phrase statements that gives people an opportunity to open up instead of close up. And you should approach accusations in the same way. Rather than providing direct answers or accusations, set up these statements in a way that will let the other person guide the conversation and the amount of information they decide to share. Next, Chris gives us the rundown on how to do an accusation audit. This whole uh, accusations audit is doing an audit, if you will, of all the negative things the other side might think about you. Not what you think about them, but what they might think about you. And it really starts with, you know, what's all the stuff that you're worried that you need to deny? Like, I don't want you to think I'm greedy. I don't want you to think I'm not listening. I don't want you to think I'm disrespectful. Uh, if you're in sales, every salesperson knows that there are enough, not your fault, but there are enough slimy salespeople out there that sales has got a negative connotation to the word. You know, the car salesman, the used car salesman. Everybody in sales understands that. So you might want to say, I don't want you to think I'm just another salesman, slick salesman. 
whatever you might want to deny is simply take the denial out and list that stuff out and put it at as you may think, you probably think is even stronger. I'm sure you probably think that since I'm in sales, I'm another fast-talking, hustling salesperson who doesn't care about you, who just wants to push you into a deal. I'm sure you. I'm sure this is going to sound re- disrespectful. I'm sure this is going to sound like I don't understand. You're probably going to think this makes me look greedy. Empathy, again, how the other side might see things, but just listing stuff out in advance and using it to either dismantle the elephant in the room or to keep the elephant from getting built in the first place. That's the thing that most people are most afraid of is they think you're going to speak a negativity into existence by calling it out. You know, what's that stupid movie, Candyman? If you say Candyman five times, boom, the, you know, the, bag, the boogeyman is there. What really happens is it creates this inoculating effect. So much so that if you don't have a negative thought in your head, but I know you're going to react negatively to what I'm going to say, I will say this is going to sound harsh. And then I'll let you, I'll watch you to watch you brace yourself. And you're going to give me some sort of a physical signal, if not verbal, to go ahead. And this is actually now we realize is grounded in neuroscience because an emotional pain and a physical pain is almost exactly the same thing. And neuroscience has found that if I warn you pain is coming, there's going to be a window that you need to brace yourself. Like if I, if I have to, if I'm a doctor and I'm going to put a, give you a, a needle, I'm going to say, this is going to hurt. Now, somewhere between three and 20 seconds is probably the window. And I need to watch you and you're going to go like, all right, give it to me. And then bang, whatever that is. So if I say, effectively, this is going to sound harsh, which is what I have to say is going to hurt, I'll let you brace yourself and you will appreciate the warning. And it will hurt less every time. Another way to improve the chances of having a mature, grounded conversation is by paying close attention to body language. In Chris's masterclass on body language, he talks about the 738-55 rule. Let's listen to Chris explain that rule and why nonverbal communication is much more important than we often realize. Well, basically, if you add those numbers up, you get 100. And the 38 stands for tone of voice and the 55 stands for body language, which is kind of 93% of your communication is not the words. And uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, they want to argue whether those numbers are accurate, they get crazy over it. And the, the really the most important issues, to re- regardless of how strong you think those numbers are, tone of voice and body language is a lot more important than the words. I can say to you, wow, that was a smart remark. That's an insult. <laughs> if I would say to you, wow, that was a smart remark. That's a compliment. I didn't change a word. If that doesn't illustrate to you the difference in tone of voice, I don't change a single word 
and the meaning changes 180 degrees. So what about body language? Our director of business development is a young lady named Davy Johnson, and she's just naturally an encouraging person. And she's, she's told me, we were talking about this the other day, she knows if she's talking to somebody, she tilts her head to the side and puts her eyebrows up like she's really interested. Like she's shocked at what people will share with her. And she, she'll just go, really? And they will start laying out stuff to her of the struggles that they're dealing with and how much our help as a business could be for them. And she's almost astonished. She didn't even have to ask a question. She just goes, really? And body language can be so encouraging if you let it be. Or conversely, it'll shut people down if you don't watch it. So it can be an enormously encouraging, enormously powerful thing to use in conjunction with your intent. I said there were two things about the 738.55. The real issue is when body language and tone of voice do not match up with the words. That's when you know you got a problem. It doesn't matter what the ratio is. It's when those things are not lining up then you realize that what they're saying and what they're feeling are two different things. And then you dig into it. So could you give us an example of, a common example of when people's, what they say doesn't match their body language? If I'm trying to get an agreement from you and you go, okay. A lot of people would say, oh, they said, okay, we're good. But the way I said it, there's a lot of stuff crossing my mind. There's a lot of things that I'm worried about. If I go, okay, you think that deal's going through without a hitch, you are in for a rude surprise. How do you deal with that? You just say something as simple as what we call a label. You go like, I heard you say okay, but it seemed like a lot of things crossed your mind when you did. That's... What, what gets them, it makes them feel safe sharing the things that went through their mind. So that's, that, that, that would be an example of how their words would not match up with their tongue. Really since the first time that we talked, we use labels a lot more than uh, questions to get information out of people. Now, you know, instead of saying like, What's on your mind today? I might say, seems like there's stuff on your mind today. Now, the second way is most likely to get a lot more really good information out of you than the first way. Or what's stopping for you guys from going through with this deal? Would switch to, seems like there's something stopping you guys from going through with this deal. That second one, that label, is going to get a lot more information. Do you understand why just that small shift would, would change the way somebody reacts to it? Like, what, what's the reasoning behind that? I think principally, um, Danny Kahneman, who wrote the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talked about slow, in-depth thinking and fast, reactionary thinking. And a what question will trigger you into slow, in-depth thinking, which means you're going to think a lot about the question, 
which means the answer is going to be guarded and filtered. And depending upon how much mental energy you have, you may just stop thinking about it because it's too much work. So questions cause those sorts of reactions. We're seeing it on a regular basis. If I just go, seems like, for whatever reason, I know it will trigger your unvarnished thoughts to come out much more readily. So much so that we had a client say, labels unlock the floodgates of truth talk. Because people got so much more candid and just, they don't think about what they're saying. They just start sharing it. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that, I need to sell more with less stage Shopify Magic is your AI super-powered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea and then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. 
Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. You want to make sure you're communicating a cohesive message between your words, tone, and body language. Because if you're sending mixed messages, even unintentionally, that can put people on edge. And we want to aim for fast reactionary thinking because it tends to be more honest. Like we've heard throughout this episode, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is to give the other side the illusion of control. In the past, when I imagined a successful negotiator, I'd picture this dominating presence of an overpowering person who's using better arguments and reasoning than their counterpart. But my first interview with Chris Voss four years ago really opened my eyes because I realized the whole secret to negotiation is to actually make the other person feel in control. So they tell you as much information as possible and you're able to say as least information as possible. Let's hear a few last tips from Chris on how we can do that. The what and how questions, you know, in a black swan method, we, we call calibrated questions. People love to be asked what to do. People love to be asked how to do something. You give them the illusion of control when you ask those questions. And negotiation is not about control. To guide someone, what in crisis intervention they call guided discovery. That's not control. It's giving the other side a lot of latitude. But you kind of frame things with a what or how question. And the other side doesn't feel framed. They, They feel... They would just ask what to do or how, how to do it. I mean, they feel in control. So it's giving the other side the illusion of control. It's usually through a what or a how question. Could you give us an example? Well, you know, the, the famous, how am I supposed to do that as a way to say no? The other side doesn't feel attacked. Uh, what it really is, is if you can't do something because the implementation is really difficult, you say, how am I supposed to do that? Or you might say it three times, how am I supposed to do that? Or you might say it a third time, how am I supposed to do that? Each one of those questions makes the other side think about the complexity of the problems, but they don't know that you made them think about it. They feel in control. They feel like you, you're asking for help. And, you know, that's kind of the, that's the way you get it started. So yeah, fam, always remember, don't try to force your opponent to admit that you're right. Ask calibrated questions instead that begin with how or what so your opponent can use mental energy to figure out the answer. Well, that concludes this episode of Yap Snacks. Every time Chris Voss comes on the show, I'm totally blown away. Too many people are ignoring the multidimensional nature of communication. It's not just about what you say or even how you say it. There's so many factors that play into negotiation. Chris's human behavior hacks teach us how to take hold of several aspects of an interaction in order to gain the outcome of what we want by adjusting our body language, using tactical empathy, and framing information and accusations in a specific way. Way, we can help control the outcome of any situation. 
We covered a lot of ground in negotiation in this Yap Snack series, and employing all of these tactics right away may seem like a daunting task. So I advise that you start small. Pick one or two tactics that really stood out during these episodes and then use them in your everyday interactions. See how your conversations and your everyday negotiations start to lean in your favor. If you want to take a deep dive into the exciting world of human behavior and negotiations, you can check out some of my full interviews with Chris Voss. He came on episode number 23, as well as number 144. I also got a Webby honoree for my live podcast with Chris Voss and Alex Carter that was called Negotiate Like a Boss. And you guys can scroll back in the archives and take a listen to those episodes if you really want to get even deeper into this topic. And also, if you love human behavior and negotiation, we have playlists on these specific topics. I've interviewed dozens of experts in this field. All the top experts in human behavior have literally been on Yap, like Robert Greene, Dr. Jack Schaefer, Katie Milkman. So if you want to get playlists on human behavior and topics like this, go to Spotify, go to YouTube, and you can find our human behavior playlist there. Thanks so much for listening to this week's Yap Snacks on the best of content with Chris Voss. I hope you guys learned some actionable tips that you'll use ASAP. And if you enjoyed this episode and if you learned something new, I would love if you drop us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You guys can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Yap with Hala. You can find me on LinkedIn if you search for my name. And we're also on YouTube. So if you like to watch your podcast, I highly recommend our YouTube channel. We've been doing a great job. Our videos are really nicely produced and there's a great community on there and you guys can chat with each other in the comments. I think it's a really fun way to listen to the episodes or watch them, I should say. Well, anyways, big thanks to my Yap team. This is your host, Hala Taha, signing off.